0: Hello, Duncan Green here, um, with bringing you up to date with the latest posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. i uh, got a couple of weeks to catch up on as I was on holiday last week, but the blog kept churning, so there's a few more than usual. First up uh, was some thoughts of mine on a recent trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, about how to talk about corruption. I found myself in meeting after meeting wondering if the official I was talking to was on the take and not knowing how to ask them. I tried indirect, you know, is it are informal payments common around here? I tried asking officials whether other officials were corrupt. Um, my colleague Tom Kirk from the LSE uh, suggested I, I try and get somebody they trusted to say what well, in Pakistan he was... He heard people say, give him the Pakistani version. You know, So tell him what's actually going on. None of these things worked. Um, And so it was very frustrating. But then as time went on, I also started thinking that the whole frame of are you corrupt, are you not corrupt, is an incredibly, it felt like a very outsiderish kind of frame. Um, No one uses that kind of language in everyday conversation. There's an incredible vocabulary of different forms of graft which I, I, I put on the blog. Um, but also sort of beneath that, there is this, you know, this very crude Western idea that either you're an honest official doing your best for the public and you never steal a penny, or you're deeply corrupt and are completely venal and, you know, beyond the pale. And actually, you know, most people actually, West and anywhere else, live somewhere in between. You know, you might take a few pencils home from work or whatever it is but it's always a spectrum and so the question is can you steal and serve the public and uh, you know I, I just got into a bit of a tangle about it anyway the blog generated lots of great comments from people who thought and worked on this much more than me so I urge you to read the comments as always they're often better than the blog post I have to admit Next up, I was giving away some intellectual property. I don't really believe in intellectual property. And um, I've been doing a lot of blog training recently, which is basically getting everyone in a room and saying, have a go at it, write some blogs. And then you go through and you critique and discuss the blogs and how they could be improved and all this kind of thing. There's no reason for me to be there. So I put up on the, uh, the, my PowerPoint, uh, lots of links and some ideas for st- how to structure a one hour or a three hour session. Uh, I have to say it doesn't seem to work because people are still asking me to come and do blog training sessions but I really am redundant and you can just do it yourself using uh, that stuff and uh, please do so. Um, next up was uh, one of this amazing series of the, the Bukavu series of blogs uh, run out of Ghent University with a lot of young researchers from, uh, the, from the Congo. This one was by Pierre Bassemise Ngalishi uh, Ganyagheri and it was on the NGOization of research. Um, so what he he's arguing is that this is a kind of who pays the piper kind of question. Who is paying for research in countries like the Congo, academic research? Um, and, and and what are the problems with that? So first up, I was interested to hear that in the Congo, research is seen as a sort of second class pursuit compared to teaching. Um, my observations at the LSE is it's the other way around. Research is, is the, the the real thing, and teaching is seen as this onerous and annoying um, uh, distraction, and I think it's really unfair on LSE students when faculty think like that. But anyway, it's the opposite in, in the Congo. Um, and when you do do research, it's basically a glorified consultancy. You're chasing money, little parts of research money, from donors. Pierre talks about NGOs, but I would add, you know, uh, bilaterals like DFID, all sorts of but basically aid agencies of one sort or another and if they're paying the money then they're going to distort the way research is done i don't think there's any question of that so they will shape which issues the way they talk about those issues will have some kind of external gaze the way those issues are framed you know like my previous post on corruption for example um, there is a real question mark over how much research funded by the aid sector will genuinely, deeply challenge the aid sector. Um, and um, an interesting one, which I hadn't heard before, was saying that communities, in in Pierre's experience, are now linking research to interventions, to projects. So they now no longer see them as separate. So the the, the piece of research is seen as like the first contact with something which will eventually generate some practical material benefits which makes life hell for a researcher who is not linked to the provision of project funding. So interesting sort of dilemmas in terms of how research is funded. Um, I then had a little uh, summary of links I liked, things I've enjoyed on social media in the past couple of weeks Two stand out I think uh, both videos. First President Obama uh, calling out um, or rather questioning the call out culture on social media and saying look if you just slag someone off on twitter or on uh, facebook uh, for saying something slightly incorrect that is not activism that it will not bring about change and maybe it's just because i'm old and grumpy but i just thought thank you barack that's what i absolutely agree there's too much sort of virtue signaling and political positioning without any follow-up and and, and i think that's right Second, very exciting, uh, Hajun Chang um, is going to be running a series of lectures, online lectures called Economics for the People, starting in December. And I put up a little um, sort of taster video. That's going to be very exciting. Know, I've, I've written to him and I hope to repost some of those on the blog. Next up, four Honduran feminist activists um, talking about what they need from international allies, which is uh, a great idea, one of it's one of our power shifts posts. It was originally posted on Open Democracy, which is a great uh, 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 website, which I urge you to check out. Um, and they came up with some very basic things, bits of advice. So fund the right people, grassroots movements. Fund them in the right way, flexible, long-term funding. Um, one reaction to the sort of crackdown on ngos and civil society organizations around the world is that many activists are now not registering they're sort of trying to stay below the radar and so the 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 hondurans were saying well you've got to try and find ways to support unregistered ngos it's not uh, good enough to just stay in the registered space um and then finally Use your international pressure, your international structures to, to, to try and put pressure on governments to hold back some of the abuses, the growing tide of abuses against um, grassroots organisations. And that focus on international pressure leads us nicely into the following um, uh, blog, which was by Saskia Breckenmacher and Tom Carruthers, who were at the Car- Carnegie Endowment uh, in the States. And they have got a new paper out. I always love the, the, the great thing about Saskia and Tom is not only do they write really interesting stuff, but their blogs are so good, I, I just stick them straight up. They need no editing, which is just fantastic. And their, their, their latest paper is on... Um, Is the international community stuck in the way it defends civic space? And I think that's one of those questions to which the answer is yes. Um, But then what to do about it? And they're saying, you know, they've come up with some practical suggestions. Um, Yes, you need to spend money. Yes, you need to give political support to civic organizations under stress. You need to coordinate much better within government, so DFID with the Foreign Office, State with USAID, um, but also across governments, you know, where it's given very low priority, this kind of question, um, and, but then also, just a little sting in the tail, um, it's no good Western governments going on about civic space if they're busily shutting down civic space uh, on their own turf. And I think that's a lesson for a number of governments, including my own, that uh, they, they can very easily be accused of double standards if they start banging on about the wonders of um, uh, civic society, if they're giving civic society a hard time, civil society a hard time at home. Which also segued into the following and last of, our, of, of the posts, which is a really nice piece of work by Civicus, the International Network of Civil Society Organisations, um, four practical ways to shift power and funding to grassroots movements um and i like the focus on practical because there's a lot in you know, yeah a lot of people denounce the lack of funding and power going to grassroots movements but we need to think concretely about how to do this and i thought that their, their ideas were really good ones they they came out of a very prolonged consultation with a, a large number of uh, grassroots movements around the world and it shows because i think the the the, the suggestions are really interesting First one is Grassroots Change Labs, which act as kind of incubators for fledgling CSOs, fledgling grassroots movements in different countries. They you know, provide training, give some advice on, on finance, um, on, on social media, on whatever's needed. So that, that kind of um, incubator approach. The second one is sort of non-branded basket funds, which sounds really boring, but it's really important. Large funders find it very difficult to give away anything but large chunks of money. Giving away a few thousand dollars is just impossible because they have so few staff and so much money to to, to, to give away during the course of a year. So one way, but but for grassroots organizations, often... is really useful and $2 million is fatal. So how do you give those $2,000 chunks out uh, in a way that is not micromanaging? And their suggestion is you have these basket funds where aid organizations put in some money, stay well away, don't put their logos all over everything, and hand over the governance to local uh, organizations and local leaders. And that acts as a sort of a way of breaking down those big chunks of money into much more useful, small amounts of money for grassroots organizations. Um, Third one is a quality trademark for funders, turning the tables a bit. So funders would be assessed on whether they were actually supporting grassroots organizations in a useful way. And if they are, they get a kite mark, they get a stamp. Um, And if they don't, they lose a stamp. I think that sounds brilliant. I love this kind of upward accountability uh, or rather downward accountability uh, sort of process. Um, And then fourth is an online resourcing platform, something which actually supports CSOs wherever they are. Um, with with whatever they need. And that's just a kind of clearinghouse and advisory function. Really good examples of practical solutions to a really big question, which is how do we get serious about supporting the strength and independence and viability of civil society organisations in a politically hostile time? And on that happy note, I will leave you and have a good weekend. Bye.